I'm Mary Ann, if you haven't met me. I'm from Grand Rapids, Michigan. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel. I'm from Burkina Faso, West Africa, and my major is, what am I? I forgot, <laughs> blank, blank. Oh, I'm theology, <laughs> with, emphasis, with emphasis of New Testament and music minor. Uh, I'm Jacob Oberg. I'm this guy's brother, also grew up in Burkina Faso, and cross-cultural studies. Hi, my name is Dee. I'm this guy's uh, friend. <laughs> and I'm from the Philippines, and I'm also taking nursing. I can't top that. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm a pastoral studies uh, and youth ministry major, and I'm from Hmong Nation. Ni hao. I'm Reagan from Singapore. Uh, I'm a psychology major. Um, this is Kendall, or Kendra to some. Uh, <laughs> She's, a, a, she's from Spain, and she is a communications major. <laughs> My name is Kayla. Um, <laughs> I'm from Malaysia, and I'm a nursing major. Thank you. <clears throat> um, you guys can go sit down. Uh, Jacob, the tallest one there, <clears throat> he uh, was going to give you a little um, report from his uh, envision mission trip this summer. He went for a month to the Philippines, but when I told him he had to scrunch down his 45 or 30 minute talk to three minutes, he said, nope, can't be done. So I'm going to give you the thumbnail version, and he really welcomes you to come to him and ask him about it because he had a phenomenal time and he wants to tell about it, but he didn't want to get halfway through and me chop him. So we're not going to do that. Um, he stayed with, he roomed with three friends. Um, Josh was a missionary kid from Nepal. Omar was a Muslim convert where none of his family was saved. And RG, uh, this guy was a, a uh, drug addict that was saved, and this guy is on fire. And um, uh, Jacob had the most fun with him. Um, they lived, uh, they, did, they were doing missionary work. They did all kinds of stuff. They worked in the schools, churches, Bible studies, devotions, youth group. But he learned the most from hanging out with these three guys. And um, Vision is a CMA where it gives you a chance uh, to go and for an extended time, not real long, but like a month, and see what it would be like to do actual mission work. So that's Jacob. John, since I changed the names, <laughs> Rebecca, I changed the names to protect the innocent. And she said, you can use my real name. Like, okay. John and Rebecca were at work at their mission jobs. John was doing tech work for the missions and Rebecca teaching at the mission school. They both received the call that their 18-year-old daughter at Simpson had received a very severe concussion playing soccer. They were 8,271 miles away. Kay, we call her Special Kay, she's an excellent student. She's in pre-nursing, but she couldn't concentrate. Uh, they had a delayed diagnosis, and she was getting way behind in her studies. 
And if you know anything about the nursing program at Simpson, it's very good. We are rated now number eight in the state of California out of 129 or whatever. Our president says a little bigger number, but it's not that big. We always tease him. Um, but if you get behind, you're not getting in. And she wants to follow the steps of her family. She wants to be a missionary nurse. Well, John and Rebecca felt helpless. Put yourself in their shoes. How would you feel if you were 8,271 miles away from your only daughter? She was going through very, very serious time and there was nothing you could do about it. Should they quit their jobs so they could come home to take care of her? Uh, their jobs allow a whole lot of other missionaries to stay on the field. So they impact a lot of people. If they come home, how many people will they affect? People say, why is Gatehouse? What is Gatehouse about? Well, because Kayla has a family of brothers and sisters who understand what, it's, what you're going through um, just coming to the United States from another culture, uh, that was healing for her. Let, let me uh, paint the picture for you. Um, let's say that you moved to a new place and you got a new job and those of you that are uh, still in school, not as many, I don't see as many, but some, um, you went to a brand new school and at that school and at that job, they started talking about cricket. And you said, why are you talking about those funny little things that jump around and make that noise? They weren't talking about that. They were talking about the sport of cricket. And they were saying, is Boom Boom Afridi, is he the best? No, it's M.S. Dahani. And someone else says, no, it's Sachin Tendulka. Dan Tandulkar. Anybody here ever heard, not you guys, you heard it already. <laughs> Anybody else ever heard those names? Well, of course, Shalem was here last and he raised his hand. He ruined my, my <laughs> example. Cricket, do you know, I looked it up, America has one of the richest cricket histories of any country in the world dating back over 300 years, started in 1709 was the first recorded. So long before they played football, basketball, or baseball, they were playing cricket here in the United States. What's my point? Uh, my point is, you know, that lost out, and people all over the world, especially in the Commonwealth countries, they play cricket. So if you went there, you would know what they're talking about. And that's exactly how students that are coming here that aren't raised in our culture, how they feel. So, what are college students face? Well, they're trying to figure out who they are. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do with their life. What, am I, you know, am I going to career? Am I going to, uh, am I going to date? Am I going to get married? They're wrestling with all of these things and now throw into it a whole cultural, um, whole mix of cultural stuff. Well, 
Kayla had a family to be with. It was her, her brothers and sisters who, who got, got her through that. Now, of course, we have Skype and everything else, so she could talk to her parents, so that was very good. But she had a family, and that's what, that's what Gatehouse is about. First and foremost is they have each other that understands the craziness of what they're going through when they come here to the United States. Um, yeah. So I want to invite you. Um, we have some opportunities. Uh, at Simpson now, we have 46 new internationals uh, from last fall and this fall. Not, not counting any of the missionary kids, not counting other uh, third culture um, kids of our own in the United States, and not counting the other um, uh, missionary kids that aren't with us. So I don't even know how many there are. But there's nobody on campus right now to work with them. We don't have the staffing. So what do they do? David Duxbury, up until he left uh, um, a week ago, he'd pick up the phone and say, Hey, Scott, can you take so-and-so, well, it was Rohi, uh, to, to, the, uh, to the doctor? Yes. He's a runner from Ghana, uh, from Ghana, from um, uh, Kenya. Thank you, Artie. <laughs> I have these senior moments all the time. We've had, to, my wife and I have made five trips with him. One time it was, a, it was a five and a half hour. Most of them are you're just taking them and drop them off. But we've spent over uh, uh, 13 hours, close 14 hours. And the world has come to us. Many of you probably, you know, you say, uh, God, you never called me to work cross-culturally. You never, well, guess what? If God's tugging on your heart, if he's giving you a little nudge, we have a phenomenal opportunity. The world has come to us, and they're open. Now, um, a majority of them at, uh, at Simpson uh, don't know the Lord. Some do, but many don't. And they just need loving on. And many of them, they've never known a Christian. They don't, they don't know what Christians are like. They don't know anything about the. So we're starting what's called an alpha. Um, if you think of it, this Thursday you pray for it, where we, we invite them. They have chapel and other things. But, um, so if you have interest, we have three sign-ups in the very back. One is for if you have any interest in just exploring, like the idea of adopting a... Um, an international, or just being available once in a while for a call that you would, you would uh, rub shoulders with them, take them somewhere. Um, next would be to pray for our own students. Um, up until the, the campfire where um, Paradise was burned, the Paradise Alliance Church did something very unique. They had a real large group, and every year they would adopt one of our uh, students, uh, someone in the group, or many of them, and they would pray the entire year. And so they had prayer covering. That church didn't burn, but almost all the homes did, and they are no more. We don't have that prayer covering, and it made a difference. We've had people come off our hill and get hit by the car, not killed, bad shape. We've had knees blown out, but it's been that prayer covering that's made a difference. So we're coming and saying, is there anyone who would like to pray for our students? Um, and thirdly, we have an email list if you'd like to know uh, what's, uh, what's going on in events. 
I would like to throw out, we're doing an international dinner on November 16th, Saturday, and we would love to have a bunch of you. We've had only a couple in the past. Um, uh, a missionary of 40 years, uh, they were over an entire continent, they came to it, and they said it was the best international food they've ever had, and they said the entertainment was even better, because Shalem, He's always there. Of course, he lived with us. Noah Wang, if you guys know anything about his musical talents, it's a lot of fun. We'd love to have some more of you. Hallelujah! <laughs> okay, that was pretty good. <laughs> All right. Oh, man, I'm going to have fun with you guys. So my name is Andrew Herr. Uh, I'm a pastoral study and youth ministry major. Did you show that picture? Yeah. <laughs> Fit for youth ministry, right, Pastor Sean? <laughs> Hopefully I get a raise when I get out of college. Uh, so I'm, I was born in the most holiest of holiest place in California, Stockton, right? So if Jesus was to be born in this modern age, that's where he would be born. He was born in a manger, and I was born in the streets. Not in the streets, but the hospital across the street. <laughs> and I am also the oldest of six kids. And, uh, and why that's so significant is that because I'm the oldest and I'm five years older than my younger brother. And uh, when living in Stockton, my worldview was that, you know what? For the first five years of my life, my life is safe. My life is good. My life is great. And part of why I'm sharing this is because Scott asked me to share about this piece of my life. And it's revolving around racial prejudice. Uh, it might be sensitive to some of you, but I pray that hopefully you don't throw any rocks at me. Hopefully you can miraculously turn them to bread to eat later. So, man, that threw me off too, see? I saw a rock coming off from somewhere. But going back to my family, my worldview was safe. It was great. I didn't know anything about violence. And this is probably because my, my dad, he used to be actually be in a gang. And when he met my mom, they had me. He decided to change his life and get a full-time job to support the family. And the reason why he probably kept me and my mom in the house was because he didn't want us to be outside of the homes because who knows, there might be a drive-by or who knows, maybe there might be gang members or whoever it is outside that might be walking by that's bad. So my life was all good until I entered the public schools and, uh, this, this, and this incident took place in first grade. And I was playing with my Hmong friends and we we're just playing tag and all of a sudden, this big kid, he grabs me and he slams me down on the ground. And I was terrified, I was hurt, I was broken. Not technically broken, but broken. And, um, and I looked up, and I realized it was a black student. And when I went back home and I told my parents and my grandparents about what had happened, they were so furious, they were so angry, they were so mad. And the reason was because they told me that, hey son, you can't trust any black people or any white people. You can only trust your own people. A lot of us, we may even say that's racist. Even I would say that it's racist. But there's a story behind that. Many of you guys are familiar with the Vietnam War, right? The Vietnam War has a sub-war called the Secret War, and this was during the time when the CIA was infiltrating the, uh, the communist territories in Vietnam, and they needed assistance, and they got the assistance from the Hmong tribes in Thailand and Laos. And when the war, when we lost the war, they, part of the deal was to bring some of the Hmong community back to the United States as refugees. So my grandparents on my dad's side, they came to the United States as refugees, thinking that they're gonna have a brand new life where they get to start a prosperous life, right? But in the home that they were in, my grandpa would tell me the story. Every night when they would go to bed, there's always these loud bangs on the door. 
saying all these nasty things, and they realized it was white people. And these were the first people they encountered in the United States. And they were so terrified. They ran away from persecution and life threats from the war, and now they are facing this in the United States. And as you can see, you, there's a generational pattern of racial prejudice. My grandparents faced racial, uh, racial problems when they came to the United States, and it passed on to my parents because maybe my dad joined a gang was because of retaliating against, against blacks or whites that was punking all the Asians around because they were small or thinking that they were dumb. Maybe that's why he joined a gang, and they had their own racial prejudice. And that passed on to me. In the public school setting, I experienced it because a black kid who was bigger than me decided to bully me and decided to hurt me. And I thought that, you know what? Because in the Asian culture, we respect our elders. What my dad said, what my mom said, what my grandpa said is true. And that carried on throughout my whole entire life. And just to make a note, too, I was a non-Christian at this point. I didn't know anything about God. I didn't know anything about forgiveness. I didn't know anything about hope. So my whole entire life, I felt I was inferior to white people and black people. I felt like I was never worthy enough, and I felt like I was never good enough. And even when I became a Christian at age 13, uh, how, I, how I became a Christian was that I was welcomed by Christians that were Hmong, not Christians that was white, just for context, okay? And the youth there, they welcomed me with open arms, and here I am having a great time knowing who God is, and I gave my life to the Lord. But yet, some reason, this racial prejudice was still attached to me. Even though I say I love God, even though I say this and that, God's renews my mind, but I still have this racial prejudice against white people and black people. So fast forward, it came to the point where my dad just passed away in 2015 recently, uh, three, four years ago. And I was in a moment where I had to make the biggest decision of my life. Either go to Simpson to go pursue pastoral studies and youth ministry, or either stay at home and do something that maybe God has not even created me to do at all. So I was struggling. I was wrestling with it. I was like, you know what? I don't want to leave mom behind. I'm the oldest. I have to take care of my five younger siblings. Mom just quit her job, and she's a substitute teacher part-time, just living off of whatever she has to support the family. How could I find money to go to Simpson? I don't even know if I could go to Simpson, because I know in Reading, 99%, 0.9%, all the people there are white. <laughs> in 2016, I was like, you know what? I, I might as well just go to Simpson, give it a shot, see what it's like. And at this time, it was crucial for me because if you were looking back 10 years ago at Simpson University, about there's like 30 to 40 Hmong students on campus. But the year I went, there's only three of us. And I'm just like, the Hmong people, we're really tight in the tight community. I mean, like I said last service, look, they're all sitting together too, and even the Asians too, so we'll... we'll. <laughs> but that's how we were like, tight community. But because the three of us at Simpson, we had so many things to do. We had our own lives to do. And we were just so busy, we never got a chance to hang out together. So for me, building community was so difficult because every time I walk past by a white person, I'm always thinking, oh, he thinks I'm stupid. Or if I pass by a black person, I might think I might even get beat up. Who knew? But I was so broken because I just lost my dad. And I was like, you know what? I have no choice. I have to find somebody at least. So one time during chapel at Simpson, uh, the, the person who was preaching, he said to every student in the chapel saying, hey, if you need to find prayer, I, I hope that you find somebody in this room to pray with. Because I was dealing with so much grief of losing my dad, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to go and find Pastor Doc, or Dr. Bill Griffin, who was a previous campus pastor at Simpson University. And I saw him from the distance. I was like, oh, that's the professor I saw on the first day I came to visit Simpson. So I might as well go to him. And as soon as I go to Dr. Griffin, I'm like, Dr. Griffin, I need prayer. I just lost my dad. I'm so worried about my family who's taking care of them. And I just start bawling my eyes. I started weeping. And then he just pulls me closely, and he embraces me. And he says, Andrew, 
my brother, I love you. Why was that so significant? Because in the Asian culture, we live in a hierarchy system, right? For him to be a doctor, to bring himself down to a brotherly level, meant so much to me. And because he said, I love you, in the Hmong culture, we're not really affectionate with our words, so we tend to shy away from those words. But because I needed that so much, and I got it from a white male person who was three times, four times my age, it changed my life forever about my view towards white people. And those racial prejudices I had for almost my whole entire life began to diminish, all because he said, I love you, my brother, and he was genuine and authentic about it. So every time I see a white person, I'm like, wow, can I give you a hug? <laughs> so if you don't like hugs after service, oh, that's a shot. <laughs> and same goes for the black community too. Um, professors are always easy to look up to, but finding a student to be a friend with, that's difficult. And I remember one time during a talent show, there was a black student by the name of Jermaine Worley. He shared a, uh, a poem about him losing his dad and it just clicked. I'm like, you know what? Um, okay, maybe this guy might be the only guy I could connect with. So I go and meet this guy, and we have dinner, and we just start talking about uh, us losing our dad, and all of a sudden we became good friends. Every time we would go to basketball games, people would think we're demonically possessed because we're the loudest ones there, standing up. Yeah, I see Scott over there ready to throw some vegetable oil at me. <laughs> so um, I'm just really grateful for Jermaine because he changed my perspective about black people. Not all black people are bad. Not all white people are bad. It's just those few that who have hurted me in the past. And every time I see white people and every time I see black people, my perspective was never, ever the same. And my life began to change, and God transformed my life. And one thing to share as well, too, with Gay House Ministry is that um, after I finished my first year at Simpson, um, I couldn't find any financial assistant. I maximized my loans. My mom couldn't help me financially. And I was like, God. I'm just finished my first year, I'm loving it so much, but how can I even pursue being a pastor at all? I don't have any money. You expect me to be here? I can't even afford it, what the heck? I'm just gonna go back home. There's no point of me even being alive or whatever. And within moments of just contemplating and just being angry with God, I receive a phone call from Scott Studebaker and he asks me this question. Ming, would you like to live at Gatehouse? I'm like, what? Uh, first of all, I don't have any parents that are missionaries or they're not even pastors. And why would I be included? And it was because of his loving heart and Marianne's loving heart that they were pushing. Not, sorry, they're not pushing. They were fighting for it. And the board decided to agree to allow me to stay with them. And it changed my life forever. Now that I get to live with these guys, these guys are so amazing, all these gay house students. They go through so many things. They go through all of my jokes that I put on them. They forgive me for all that for building on them. It's kind of like they have racial prejudice against me now. <laughs> and I'm just so thankful for them. And uh, what's so significant about living in a gay house is that um, I share that story that they're supporting me, white people are supporting me, to my grandparents, grandparents. And my grandparents are like, what? White people are helping you? Okay, well, first of all, if they're helping you, then you better make sure that you're cleaning Scott's toilet, you better make sure that you're scrubbing Marianne's bath wall, and all of these things. I mean, who does that, right? Who loves to do that? But I was like, I don't mind at all. And if you think about it, it may sound hilarious, but my grandparents, they were, they felt so blessed even though I was blessed by, by gay house ministry. Their racial prejudice began to diminish. I'm not lying to you as well too, but every time when my grandparents uh, get a chance to come and visit gay house ministry, um, they're always filled with warmth and love. 
My grandma actually bought a Hmong tie for Scott and a Hmong purse for Marianne, too. Who does that, right, Asian person? Just kidding, we all do that. That was just a joke. <laughs> but uh, Trinity, I'm, so, I'm just so thankful just to have the chance to just share this story with you. And um, my life is transformed just by a little act from somebody just saying, I love you and I believe in you. And that my encouragement to each and one of us, and even myself too as well, is that with everything that we do, may we do it for the glory of God. Every little thing we have and everything that we do furthers God's kingdom. No matter how much annoying that person is, who knows? Maybe that person's going through the same thing I went through or maybe something else in their life that they went through. But a simple touch on the back, a pat on the shoulder, you might be, even be able to change their lives too. Who knows? May God bless you in your ministry and whatever you do in your life. You're furthering God's kingdom. Amen. And that's Oberg the Elder and Oberg the Younger. He's the, uh, the shorter one. He's the elder. The shorter one's actually RA, our RA. He's a, he's a senior this year. And we, were, we always give our RAs names. Some of you have met Solomon, so he was King Solomon. Then we had Dahe, and she was a general, so she was general. And we were trying to think, what could we come up with? Because he's, he's already got the name. He's a borderline genius. If you hang around with him, he's really smart. So we thought, man, what can we name him? So we came up with, he is the RA, so he's the raw. <laughs> and then the other brother, he's got more names than all of it. He's the smiling rookie. He's the baby face, face assassin. He is, what, what, uh, what's the, give me the African ones. That one. He's got more names than anybody else. And um, some of ours over here, they've got some pretty good names too, but I won't embarrass them. See, I'm short enough that those two would feel bad if they beat me up. So I, uh, I want to take a moment to introduce um, who our band members were who we didn't get a chance to introduce. So we're going to start with China, China Zhang. Many of you are very familiar with her. China lived with us, but this year she's in a really tough uh, major, biology, and she's just hitting the books, and she said, it's too much fun at Gates House. I can't live there. So, <laughs> she's, so she decided to go over and live with Rebecca. Stand up, Rebecca. Everybody knows Rebecca. It is, this really worked out well. Rebecca, Marianne and I are starting our fifth year, and for four years, um, there's, a, there's a history at, at Gatehouse that um, when <clears throat> the, our board has to kick me out. I, can't, I just love being with these guys, so they have to push us out to go away. And, and they kept saying, you guys are not going away. And we said, well, we... Anyway, so we, we, uh, we said, well, who would take our place? Because they always have a couple. You always have a couple. And when we met Rebecca, we said, she's a couple. She does the work of two. Yeah. And so for four years, not five, four, four years when we've gone away, she will come, and she's always like, uh, what's, uh, what's that? Uh, yeah, she's a surrogate. That's it. She's always bringing gifts. She'll bring brownies and all kinds of stuff. So they're always happy when we leave, so she'll come. So along with um, China is Sarah 
Sarah Yang, please stand. Sarah has never lived with us, but she might as well. She's always over because we say, please come over and join us. We love Sarah. So that's why she's on the team. And then, not last, Angel. Um, Angel, this summer, I had the privilege. Stand up, please stay, stay up. I didn't marry her. I had the privilege of marrying, uh, of performing the ceremony. And she married Mike Tupa Mua. And Mike would be up here on bass, but they, I don't know why, they kicked him off this time. So uh, they're all musical, and um, so thank you. Uh, and um, Angel lived with us for uh, two years, and because she got married, we kicked her out. Um, but Angel has the reputation, you, you, you know, you see the straight halo? That's kind of a little, a little bit like this, yeah. So that's, uh, that's a little bit about them. And um, I want to mention for da uh, Daniel and um, Jacob, they have uh, an auntie and an uncle, Dr. David Thompson and uh, Becky Thompson. Many of us know they're kind of famous in the Alliance, medical doctors. Uh, he's a doctor, she's a nurse. They set up in bungalow, the hospital. Then they went to Egypt, Cairo. Well, they call them their kids, and uh, it's, it's uncle and auntie. Uh, but I wanted to, to, I didn't share this last time, but I wanted to share with you a comment they made when they went back to a reunion of their uh, graduating class of their boarding school. They said, when they went back to their graduating class, out of all the students, and, and it wasn't gigantic, but it was significant in number, only one was following the Lord. There was a Buddhist, and there was all kinds of other things. You guys, the pressure and the stuff that um, uh, our, our MKs go through in having to try to shift over to culture when they're going through college and all the rest. I mean, we have some amazing examples in Becky and in um, Mr. Erickson and in uh, Don Crop just recently. But we heard he experienced really the tough side and God's reached down and pulled him out. But um, so I, I, I wanted to mention, I didn't mention this last time, there's only two homes like Gatehouse in the entire United States in the evangelical world. I don't know about Catholic, Lutheran. Lutherans do a great job. They probably have something. Uh, but in the evangelical world, so, you know, we're talking Baptist, Methodist, go down the line. Um, two. And they're both, in C, they're both connected to CMA schools, Simpson and Tacoa Falls. And, um, and I didn't make those statistics up. That comes on really good. Uh, the founders of uh, David, uh, uh, the Cronbachs, uh, they work with Barnabas International. They do member care all over the world. They're in Prague now. And uh, they were the ones that founded it 20 years ago, and we had the privilege two years ago. They sat down with us in the summer, and they gave us all the history, and they told us, and they said, there's only two. Now, there's three other schools that help transition if you're coming back and you need a place to stay and you're going to work. But if you're going to go to college, you got two choices. We need a whole bunch more. But that's another subject. Um, 
the tension. You probably, we left you hanging, didn't we? They, they, uh, they rebelled. And they said, we're not going in. And what did God say? God said, okay, if you're not going to go in, I'll, I'll, we'll do this, um, we'll do like Becky used to do, get to run around the track, run around the track, run around the track. You just keep circling. You don't go anywhere. You know, you're practicing. So they got to practice a lot. Forty years going in a circle. Why? Why did they have to go 40 years in a circle? That was the generation, but why? Why did they have to go in the circle? Why didn't God let them into the land? Because they said no. <clears throat> okay, go with me for just a minute. What had they experienced up to that time? What had they seen with their own eyes? How? Okay, so uh, food drops out of the sky every day, right? Enough for that day. Okay, that's one. What else? Yeah, water. Uh, he provided, whether he's striking the rock or whatever, God provided water, right? Or throwing the, st the branch in and making the water clean, right? Pillar of fire that led them during the day and, uh, well, at night, and cloud during the day, right? What else? Okay. What else? Tell me about that. So that'd be easy to forget, right? <laughs> You've gone through all of this, and then the, the spies come back, and they they carrying these, we don't know exactly what it is, Some, a lot of times it's called grapes, but fruit, huge fruit, and said, it's a great land. They're probably, you know, bent over and barely, great land. God's, it's everything God promised, but we can't take it. They rebelled, you know, in a lot of translations, they rebelled. They refused. Okay, we're going to pick up the story now. So 40 years later, God calls out Joshua. Not, not really, but almost. Moses was the servant of the Lord. And Joshua, son of Nun, was Moses' helper. After Moses died, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, My servant Moses is dead. Now you and all these people must go across the Jordan River. You must go into the land that I am giving the Israelites. I promised Moses that I would give you this land, so I will give you all the land wherever you go. We know that. Just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. No one will be able to stop you all your life. I will not abandon you. I will never leave you. Joshua, you must be strong and brave. You must lead these people so that they can take their land. I promised their fathers that I would give them this land. But you must be strong and brave about obeying the commands of my servant Moses. If you follow his teachings exactly, you will be successful in everything you do. Always remember what is written in that book of the law. Speak of that book and study it day and night. Then you can be sure to obey what is written there. If you do this, you will be wise and successful in everything you do. Remember, I commanded you to be strong and brave. 
Don't be afraid, because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So Joshua gave orders to the leaders of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get some food ready. Three days from now, we will go across the Jordan River and take the land which the Lord our God is giving us. Then the people answered Joshua, we will do whatever you command us to do. We will go wherever you tell us to go. We will obey whatever you say, just as we obeyed Moses. We only ask that the Lord your God be with you just as he was with Moses. Then anyone who refuses to obey your commands or turns against you will be killed. Just be strong and brave. Okay, so we have this picture of this leader. Moses dies, and all along, we, it's been known that Joshua is going to take over. But he was the lieutenant, right? And as the lieutenant, when he was one of the 12 spies and went into the land, he and Caleb, they came back with the same. All 12 spies said the same thing, that it's a great land. God's, it's amazing. It's all God said. But 10 of them said, we can't do it. And of course, Joshua and Caleb said, we can. God's going to give it to us. So this is the same guy. But can you imagine, so you said, let's take it, let's go in. But because the majority said no, you have to be with them for 40 years, going in circles, going in circles. What do you think went through his mind, all that? For 40 years, these lousy, rotten people, you know, I'm having to hang out with them, and they would, you know, I don't know what, all, all the stuff that went through his mind. But 40 years later, God says, now it's time to go. And you're the leader. So he's the guy that was courageous, wanted to go, and now why in the world, why in the world would God have to say three times, be strong and courageous? He was the strong and courageous guy. What's changed? Now he's got on his shoulders, I think it's a lot like a pastor feels, where the, the, the pressure of caring for, a, you know, a, a flock. But he's got a flock of how many million? Uh, they, you know, they, they guessed two and a half million when they came out. I mean, that's just a guess. Uh, coming out of Egypt, 40 years later, how many babies did they have? How many of them were there? We don't know, but there was a lot. And now he's the guy. He has all of that pressure on his shoulders. They're looking to him. So that's what's changed. Now he's thinking, can I do it? Am I up to it? Because did you catch what they, they said? Hey, we're going to obey you. We'll do whatever you say. Just one little catch. What was that one little catch? We only ask that the Lord your God be with you just as he was with Moses. No big deal, right? What did Moses do? Tell me, what did Moses do? What? what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This part of the Red Sea. Okay, what else? What else did he do? Yeah, name one. Okay, what else? Yeah, what else? Locusts? Yes? Yeah. Yes. Okay, we could go on and on, can't we? 
That's all. That's what Moses did. So Joshua, we're going to follow you. We'll do whatever you say. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, uh, obey you. And uh, if anyone doesn't obey you, we'll kill them. You just have to be everything that Moses was. Would that be a little pressure? So do you think he was scared? Probably. This brave guy. But what was the difference? What did God say to him that would allow Joshua to step forward and, and you know, face all this fear and go forward? What did he say? He said it twice here. And I'm not going to read, we don't have time, I'm not going to read um, uh, Deuteronomy, but it's, it's said over and over again. I will be with you. And then I love, this is one of the verses that um, I've hung on my whole life. Uh, Hebrews 13.5 is a quote from this passage. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. Um, Guys, do we live in some, uh, some scary times? Our pastor's been taking us through 1 Corinthians, and we faced, he's really, <laughs> I wouldn't preach on a lot of stuff he preached on. He's taken on really tough stuff, and stuff that's in our culture, and we could be absolutely paralyzed because of some of this stuff. And he's encouraging us that God's the same God, that, you know, it went on in Corinth, um, and yes, these are tough times, but God hasn't changed. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, scary times. I want to take you back uh, um, a little bit, my history. Um, I grew up in the 1960s, born in 55. Yeah, I'm an old codger. Um, and... I was so influenced by fear growing up. Um, some of you, you will relate to this. Um, 1963, I was, in, uh, I was in lunch line at Briscoe Elementary School in Ashland, Oregon, just up the road. That's where I grew up and graduated from. And it came over to the PA. Our president, John F. Kennedy, has just been assassinated. Then a couple of years later, uh, I was in fifth grade, Malcolm X was assassinated. Uh, a few years past that, I was in junior high. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Two months later, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. And in between, there were a bunch of, um, of um, civil rights leaders. And um, there was the, all of the civil unrest, all of the uh, civil rights, um, Kent State, Watts. Um, you know, I lived for uh, a while um, close to Watts. We, we, anyway, um, that really affected me. Then they started pumping in the war, the, uh, uh, the Vietnam War, because never had they had television that they could do this, so we got to see it right up front and personal. And so they pumped in what was going on in the Vietnam War. And I, I lived in fear. I can really understand some of our kids when they... They're fearful. They go to school. Is there going to be a shooting in there? You know, um, um, we don't have a whole lot of suicide bombings, but, you know, we've had some bombings in our country, haven't we? Um, Oklahoma City uh, taking out the Twin Towers. I mean, we're, the time is scary. Um, 
I went off to Bible college. Um, I, I need to tell you some, some, something more I didn't tell last, um, last time, so um, I'm going to skip ahead. Um, this fear God dealt with, um, I had some of the experience of the Israelites, you know, seeing what God had done, and they not really going forward, and then I had some successes. Um, God allowed me uh, to, sometimes I hear God uh, pretty well, and sometimes I need my wife, because she's always, she has told us probably um, seven, eight times, it's time to go. God can keep moving us. We were 20 years in Utah. We bought four homes. We sold four homes, uh, helping the church plant. I ran a, a, a business while we supported the, the chief uh, church planner. Um, so God, God would let Marianne know. She says, it's time. I say, nope, it's not time. And then, yep, it was time, and so we would move. Um, <laughs> And, um, but there was always a reason it was always to help in another church plant. Sometimes it was premature, but she always know, knew. Um, but when my pastor, uh, I knew I was called to missions. Um, I, I ran. I was a good runner. I was nothing like our Becky, the most decorated um, athlete at the University of North Dakota, you know, she, last year she had her induction and all that. Pretty amazing. Well, I was a good runner. I had full-ride scholarships. Um, the place my folks, I wasn't a great runner, but I had good grades. I worked really hard. So my folks wanted me to go to Columbia University, New York City. Uh, they don't really give full rides, but they provide all the funds for you. So that's where they wanted me to go. I knew God was calling me into missions. I, wanted to, I knew God was calling me to Moody. So... My coach would get all of these. We were state champions. We were good runners. Again, not great runners, good runners. Uh, I missed running against Steve Prefontaine by one year. Some of you know what that means. Um, um, but so I applied to Moody, and my coach said, you got it, you got it. at least, you may not get in. I knew God was going to put me in. So I, that was the only, it was a 33% chance of being accepted. I got in. Soon as I got there, I had, and it was my dream, uh, I had a horrible semester. I was under this absolute black cloud of depression. Um, uh, the fear that I had, had uh, experienced um, all those years, uh, Billy Graham crusade would come to town and I would go forward to get saved again. Uh, and this happened more than once. I had all of these fears and, and all this stuff. And uh, so I came home. And I uh, prayed with my pastor, and God did a miracle. I have, to this day, I have never been depressed since, and I have never, um, um, what's the other thing? The fear. In fact, most, you know, most people now think I'm, uh, I'm, I've, gone, I've gone from over here, you know. I used to take myself super serious, and now I'm over here. Over at school, they call me the party guy. I had, um, I was so serious, but why that's important is my whole life, I, every decision I made uh, was to go to the mission field. Um, I've never been on a mission trip. Um, the six years that I was working on my undergraduate degree, yes, six years, 
Uh, I was three and a half years at Moody, got a special dispensation to, st- uh, dispensation to stay an extra six months uh, because I took Greek and I was Bible theology, but I was always going to missions. Um, I was in charge of uh, the Muslim prayer focus. That's where God put on my heart. Uh, and then uh, I was in charge of all the prayer focuses, but I'd always go back to the Muslim one. So um, um, we go to... Uh, uh, I go to Michigan State, we graduate, and I'm assistant pastor uh, for three and a half years. Um, we, we aren't given a salary, we're doing our home service. It was a small church, but we were, we were reaching out to the international community at Michigan State, the largest single uh, group, and that's where we got our love for international students. Um, when we were to leave to go to Fuller Seminary, to go to study Islamics, we had no money, and um, God told Marianne, it's time to go, and I said, we can't go, we don't have any money, and uh, then our, our board of elders said, you got to go, God's saying go, and I knew it was correct, that's one of the many times, so we went. Um, we were in Ashland, and I was an assistant pastor, we came back for a half, for a year, and I was speaking, the pastor was gone, and a lady came up to us, I was working at a Mercedes-Benz dealership, uh, but we, were, we, we weren't saving any money. And she came up and she said, God says you're to come live with me and come to uh, seminary. And immediately, I knew she was right. And we had no money, June Van Loon. So we went, we went down and we, we lived with her for, uh, for two months. She had never had children. And um, so my kids drove her crazy. And so she kicked us out after two months. But God got us there. She was great. We loved her. She loved us. Um, I'm telling you some of the successes. Um, now I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell something I've never publicly uh, shared because um, um, it's not all successes. Um, while we were 20 years in Utah, I, I ran a business. And, um, and this is some of the pressure I think some missionaries uh, could face. I had an opportunity. We, our business was on the verge of exploding. And I'd never been able to save money uh, for my kids for college. I'd never been able to do... uh, So, our business was going to go absolutely crazy. And um, then the crash hit. And my wife was part of the business. And she kept saying, we got to cut our losses. And and I have two partners. And um, I said, and they said, we're just around the corner. I mean, the numbers were crazy. In two years, what, what, what could have happened? So we kept hanging on, hanging on. I poured all of my savings, all of my uh, retirement. Um, in the end, we should have lost our home. We were able to sell it. We didn't get any equity out. The reason I'm sharing this is um, my wife could have walked away from me. I gave up all of our, I, I blew it. And my wife, sta- she stands she stands with me. <clears throat> and I needed, to, uh, I needed to honor her today, telling this. She's been under uh, a lot of pressure. And I don't deserve her. <clears throat> but what I, wa- I wanted to share that. And then I wanted to say, you know, the difference between what... Um, and God, in the successes I had, God would give me the faith I needed to go... I can, I can tell you maybe five, six times 
We had no money to go ahead. And God would say, you're to go. And we said, okay. And he always provided. Isn't God good? Now, let's go back to, those, to the wandering in the wilderness. Did, they, did those people that refused to obey God, did they need to go out and conquer and do it all themselves? No, okay. So I'm going to fast forward. We're going to wrap this up. But we're going to fast forward. What, how did they conquer? So Joshua, Jesus, uh, so many times when in, in, the, in the New Testament, when in the Old Testament it's saying, be courageous, Jesus says, take courage. And that's really the idea. It's being offered. The courage is there. We just have to take it. And how do we take it? It's exactly what, they did, what the Israelites did when they followed Joseph. Joseph. Joshua, thank you. Joshua. What did God say? God said over and over in this passage that they need a strong leader. That's why he said, you've got to be courageous. You've got to be strong. They're going to follow you, but they need that leader. And in your life and my life, life gets tougher, doesn't it? And we can be scared because we have more people relying on us and all the rest. But God says, take the next step. So they didn't, the, the, the 40 years wandering, they didn't believe God. They wouldn't, they wouldn't go forward because they were, they were fixated on the problem, on the giants. Joshua, God says, you got a lot of responsibility, but I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And that's what I can leave you today. We've been through a lot, and God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He's always with us. It doesn't matter what we go through. It doesn't matter if we make dumb decisions like I did or we make good decisions. He doesn't leave us. And that's what those people that lost out for those 40 years, what they didn't get. He wasn't leaving them. They forgot everything he had done for them. And he said, so what did he say? He said, now, uh, fast forward, Joshua, take the, the ark the, and the priests, and they're going to go up to the edge of the water, and as soon as they, what? They put their toes in, that's when I'm going to stop it. But not before. And so they did. Joshua, he, he received the grace that God was giving. And the grace in the New Testament God's empowering presence. When we have God, we have all we need. We don't need anything else. You know, we think we got to have plans and, and programs and stuff. God's empowering presence. He gives us what we need at the time. And that's what Joshua. So Joshua says, come on, troops. So they go, and the priests, and they're saying, this doesn't make a lot of sense. We're going to stick our toe in the water. We're going to walk in the water. And, the way it's still right. and as soon as they touch the water, that's when it stopped. We don't have to figure everything out. We don't have to uh, um, know the whole plan, and that's where we're scared. But remember, we've got a Father who loves us, so we're reaching up, and we're holding his hand, and that's what it's about. It's about trust. It's just knowing that we have a Father who loves us, and whatever he's done in the past, he's going to continue to do for us. He's not going to leave us, and that's my challenge I want to leave with you. We live in a scary time. But we have a father who we can reach up and take his hand, and he's not going to leave us. And he's going to... Corinth was a scary, scary place. All you have to do is go back and listen to pastor's sermons. It was a scary place. And God brought those Corinthian uh, uh, Christians through. But the one thing he did, re he did require was unity. 
And that's why we have to all band together. In 1 Corinthians 11, around the table, when they said, be worthy, if you read all the context before and after, it wasn't that they didn't sin. It was that he said, stop fighting. Stop, stop destroying my body. That's what it was about. So we need to hang together, and we need to believe together. That's my challenge.